Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 161. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we're delighted to join once again with one another and share these words of life. Uh, we know that you are God and that you are in control, and so we look to you to continue to lead us and to protect us and to guide us and carry us along. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. These are the live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Nuval Bal Harvest in Thornton, Colorado. We'd love to have you join us every Shabbat. And if not, then at least catch us on YouTube. As you can see on my screen right now, Mark is going through a sermon and it's entitled Abraham and Sarah, the first missionaries. We'll be watching a video later on in the um, study called the, um, I think it's called The Life of Sarah or something like that. Uh, last week's Torah portion was Chaya Sarah, and uh, that's in honor of uh, Sarah, our matriarch, so we'll be watching a short little video. I also have a Torah teaching um, YouTube channel that I'd like to make you aware of just before we start our t- teaching. You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Torah Ministries. I'd love to have you hit my channel and check out the content. Be sure to subscribe, hit the bell, leave uh, comments, put a thumbs up, and share the content with others in your social media circles. Without further ado, let's turn to... Um, no, we don't want to go exploring the Shema. Let's turn to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. We're in Romans 14, and we're nearly done with this particular study. We will finish this year. We left off in verses um, 20 and 21, as you can see on my screen right now. We're talking really about this topic of food, which is Paul's main topic in this particular section of his letter as well. And so let's read the two verses for study, and then we'll read my comments. Over on the left side of the screen, you can see the ESB, uh, the ESV version of my Bible uh, that I've got pulled up. And then I've got the SBLG and T Greek on the right side. I'll read that as well. Uh, Paul says over here on the um, left side, he says in verse 20, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And then in verse uh, 21, he says, it is good, sorry about that. He says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Wait a second, do I want to blow that up? Yeah, I think I do. I want to get really radical there. Give me a second. All right, so um, those are the verses that we're going to be looking at. Um, uh, Paul is addressing food issues, and he's addressing really table fellowship issues all throughout this particular chapter of the letter. Let me go back and read the Greek uh, for us real quick, and then we'll jump into uh, the study. Verse 20 says, May eneken eneken bromataz katalua to ergan tu theu, panta men kathara ala kakan to anthropo dia to dia praskamatas estianti. And then verse uh, 20 right there says, Kalan to me fagen krea meda pien. Wow, I'm stumbling over the Greek tonight. Pien oinan meda in ho ha adelpha su praskapte. And then we have in brackets a little variant that shows up in some versions. Some don't show this. Um, 
but it says a scandalizetai a astene, and that'll be the end of the bracketing section and the end of verse 21 for our uh, just the reading of the verses. All right, let's drop down through the notes. Last week, what I looked at is um, I made a quote. I pulled a quote from the book of Galatians, chapter three, and the reason I did so is because. Um, at this part in the letter, Paul is winding down his comments about the fact that the the group in front of him is comprised of Jews and Gentiles who have food preferences, they've got special day preferences, um, and those preferences are causing division within the communities there in Rome. Paul hasn't visited this community yet, but he knows by the Spirit of God um, that communities around the world um, outside of Jerusalem, that's what I mean by around the world, that are um, being drawn into the gospel message are facing similar um, challenges. When Whenever you bring Jew and Gentile together and Messiah, at least in Paul's day, there were some common barriers that had to be overcome. And so we pick up the theme of kind of the larger theme of Romans when we're reading other letters. Uh, like, for instance, I'm pulling in... Um, like I said, let me see. Is this a this is a quote from? This is Galatians chapter. No, this isn't Galatians. Sorry. Uh, um, this is actually pulling in. His, I'm backing up in the letter itself um, to catch the context. But the 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 theme of this part of the letter is similar to other letters where Paul realizes he's writing to Jews and Gentiles. He knows that the congregation is not all Jewish. He knows that they're not all Gentile. He knows that there's a mixed crowd in the group. So he knows there's going to be friction. It's not exactly the same kind of friction that we might encounter today's in today's church circles, where surely we've got people from all different denominations, I'm sorry, different um, uh, kind of uh, backgrounds that attend church these days, or even Messianic congregations. But a key difference is that and you have to remember this by just going backwards in time in your mind, is that in Paul's day, there wasn't the traditional, what we would call split, between the church and the synagogue just yet. Paul's writing probably in the mid to late 50s of that of that decade, um, in the first century, and um, he's going to visit Rome in the, around the 60s, uh, and the church split between the church and synagogue isn't going to take place at least until well after the destruction of the temple in the 70s, um, in 70 AD, when the, when the temple was destroyed, and then, and then we had some furthering uh, Jewish revolts. Uh, going way way up into the 130s and things like that, mid-130s, Bar Kokhba revolt. So we're not going to really experience the church-synagogue split. Hard, I mean, we're talking about a hard split where Judaism and Christianity went their separate ways. That isn't in place yet. And because of the shared kind of faith community in Paul's day, this is why these types of discussions are a little bit more relevant as we're reading the scriptures, and we have to make some adjustment when we're doing practical application for today's 21st century communities. So, the, the, the goal is to study uh, the scriptures with the idea of understanding how it impacted the groups first, and then make the application and leap to our own personal um, congregations and church studies. So, let's read back through these verses. Um, I, I quoted these verses last week, and um, uh, what the the ones that are it, it, uh, of importance, as we, you know, as I read earlier, twenty and twenty one, which is the um, I'm sorry, yeah, twenty and twenty one, which are the verses that we're studying, is that Paul says that nothing is. Um, I'm sorry. Um, let me back up to verse seventeen so you can see where I'm where I'm talking about. Uh, 
he says that all things are clean. Now, this is verse 20 where it says all things are clean, but this is within the context of his discussing the idea that there are going to be people in the congregation who are going to um, approach God's commandments from their own cultural perspective that they bring to the table. So if you have a, a majority of Jewish people in a congregation in Paul's day, then we're going to have a knowledge of the Torah of God as handed down to Israel, as implemented in the people of, of Israel, and therefore there's going to be avoidance of anything that God says to avoid on the food table. Uh, Leviticus 11 lights, outlines which animals are edible for consumption and which ones you should avoid eating. And thus, the Jewish religious preference, um, which is kind of handed down in the form of halacha, kind of group policy for the groups, uh, you know, is administered by the group leaders, the rabbis, or the Torah teachers, or Pharisees, Sadducees, whatnot, depending on which sect you belong to. Um, there's going to be a general avoidance of idolatry and um, moving in and around circles where food is questionable in its origin, or food that was used in idolatrous circles, or meat sold in common marketplaces where it was handled by too many people who weren't um, following a kosher diet and things like that. That's the general consistent consensus that Paul is aware of among religious Jews. However, given the fact that the congregation at Rome is predominantly Gentiles who are being brought into the faith through their um, uh, believing in Jesus as the Messiah, um, they're not going to be bringing that Jewish perspective into the discussion. So there's probably going to be less strict um, avoidance of idolatry from that perspective. And that's going to um, cause some challenges for the religious Jewish people who were considering themselves part of the congregations there in Rome. So that's where this discussion like picks up where Paul says, um, true enough, all things are clean. What does he mean by clean? If we try to answer this question in verse 20, true enough, all things are clean, and we look at the English word, it's it's easy to assume that Paul means that nothing in the Torah is forbidden anymore. You go and read through Leviticus 11, and repeatedly God tells Moses to tell Israel, here, they are, here are the animals that are clean, here are the animals that are unclean, eat those which are clean, avoid those which are unclean. It's pretty black and white. But suddenly Paul comes along and says all things are clean. Does Paul mean to explain to the Roman Christians that you no longer need to follow Leviticus 11? All food is clean? That's the real question. Now, the common Christian interpretation to this question, are all things clean? The common Christian interpretation would say yes. The popular Christian interpretation down through the history of Christianity has been, for the most part, yes, Paul means that all things are clean. This is based on the words of Jesus in Mark 7, thus he declared all things clean. And thus, the general, um, how should we say, preference for not having to keep kosher that's kind of carried along through Christianity. But let's look at my commentary and see if that's really the best way to understand uh, this uh, Greek word and the force of Paul's argument. I say in my commentary this way. When you read through my um, the verse that I just read, I underline the word clean, and I say in my commentary that the word I underline above in verse 20, which in your English Bibles is clean, but in the Greek, it's the Greek word katharos, and it's defined 
in lexicons as clean or pure or blameless or even innocent. That's an interesting word there, innocent. And um, what we're trying to ascertain is why Paul would opt for this word clean when he's talking about food or animals or anything like that when he says all things are clean. Does he mean that they're ceremonially clean, right? Um, ritually clean, meaning is Paul absolutely, positively contradicting the law of Moses here. Well, I say my commentary once more. Uh, Tim Haig's comments on this Pauline passage are invaluable. So, in his lengthy commentary to Romans, which I have quoted here, uh, quoted here for us, let me just read that uh, quote. Let's see how big, long that quote is. It's not very long. We can easily navigate this tonight. Here's what Tim Haig has to say. Tim Haig, by the way, is a Messianic uh, Torah teacher uh, by today's standards, um, meaning he's not some bygone sage of you know years gone by. Um, it's not some ancient rabbinic sage or anything like that. Um, he's a modern Torah teacher. You can find his uh, teachings online at, at uh, uh, TorahResource.com, and I highly recommend them. Here's what... Uh, Tim Haig says, he is a doctor, by the way, I almost said Dr. Haig, but he doesn't go by Dr. Haig, even though he has a doctor's degree, he just goes by Tim Haig. Uh, he says, the definition of clean and unclean comes from the Torah. And I think um, I think one of the reasons that Tim Haig's mentioning that right up front is because by today's um, Bible uh, teaching standards, um, it's easy to forget as we're reading through the Bible, particularly the New Testament, and we're, we encounter commentaries and listen to sermons and things like that, it's easy to forget that Paul was a lifelong Torah-keeping Jew who was versed in the Old Testament. He understood what the true definitions of clean and unclean, he understood what God was trying to convey through the mouth of Moses when he read through his Torah. And so, it wouldn't really be beneficial for Paul to explain a new definition of clean that was different than what God had already defined as clean. So, keep that in mind because when we're having these discussions about unclean from the, from the Bible, um, and we don't go back and look at the original languages, either Hebrew or Greek, then it's easy for us to just fall back to the English that we are used to using, but not realizing that Paul wasn't speaking in English. So this will make sense a little bit later on. So uh, Haig says, the definition of a clean and unclean comes from the Torah, not from man. Not from man. It's not man. It's not even Paul who has the right to declare what's clean and unclean. Only God has the right to declare what animals can produce clean or unclean food. Man can come along and add some additional preferences on its own. For instance, God says, um, I'll give this just a crude example, but it works. God says, um, the meat from an animal sacrificed in a ritual slaughter, such as a lamb, is clean to eat. Israel, you may eat meat sacrificed from a lamb as long as it's the sacrificial procedure was done correctly and the blood was drained out and things like that and you offer the portions up to god that you're supposed to then the meat that is obtained from that lamb is clean this is god's declaration however if a man comes along an israelite this is just an example but follow along if an israelite were to come along and say well i am a vegetarian Therefore, I prefer not to eat meat. God doesn't seem to have a problem with that. 
your preference for vegetarianism doesn't uproot the biblical commandment um, that lamb is permissible to eat. Understand my example? So, God defines what is clean and unclean. Man can't change God's definition, but man does have permission to come along and augment or, um, uh, you know, create his own preference as long as it's not contradictory to what God says. So, Heg continues, Therefore, any meat declared edible by God should not be ruled unclean by man. And when we're talking about unclean, so if God says it's clean and lamb is clean, um, you know, calf or, or beef is clean, um, but pork is unclean, well then man has no right to swap those and reverse those and say that pork is clean and lamb is unclean. Man doesn't have the right to do that. Only God can um, change those definitions if he desired to. And as far as I can tell, in anywhere in the Bible, there aren't, aren't any um, verses that outline God changing his mind so far. So far, we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, when Yeshua comes back, if he decides to declare a new Torah to Israel, well, then we'll have to deal with that when Messiah comes. He has that authority. Uh, but as far as I can tell, he's, he hasn't done it. God hasn't done it. It's not going to happen. hasn't happened yet, and I don't think it's going to happen when Messiah returns. But that's the general gist of what we're looking at so far. Um, however, and we're going to play with this word clean and unclean in the Hebrew and the Greek here in a moment, but let me read Heg first. Heg says, it's on this basis about God's authority versus man's um, preferences. It's on this basis that Paul emphatically declares that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Now, here we're going to have to start playing with the words clean and unclean. In the Hebrew, when God declares animals as clean or unclean, he's speaking to the design that he created and the intrinsic nature and behavior of the animal as observable from Israel's standards. So God says to Israel, look at these particular animals. They either have certain uh, characteristics in them. I created them this way, God would go on to say. Uh, they have split hooves, um, or they don't have a split hoof. Um, they chew their cud, or they don't chew their cud. They have fins and scales, or they lack fins and scales, etc., etc. Um, uh, you know, certain birds uh, ha are, are uh, birds of prey, or they aren't birds of prey. They're domesticated type um, birds. Um, uh you know, they crawl on all fours or they have jointed legs and they can leap off the ground. If you go back and read through Leviticus 11, you'll understand what I'm referring to. So, for God to declare to Israel what animals are permissible for eating and not eating, that is something that God established and the animals haven't changed. Um, therefore, you know, evolution, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes with my fingers, evolution hasn't changed um, the nature of the, the you know the um the characteristics of the animals that God said are are not permissible to eat suddenly evolution has stepped in and wiped out those distinctives so that God has been made a fool nope hasn't happened evolution hasn't changed if you look at a pig today he still has a split hoof you look at certain fish like say a catfish he still doesn't have scales sharks still don't have scales they have fins but they don't have scales and octopus and I have neither neither fins nor scales neither do shrimp so um or lobsters so therefore it's it's easy for us to look at the same animals that god described in leviticus 3500 years ago and look at those same animals today and draw the same inference that god gave to moses that long ago with, with 
today's animals. If God's head was unclean 3,500 years ago, those same animals have those same characteristics because evolution hasn't wiped out those characteristics. Sorry, evolution. And therefore, we have the same declaration that's applicable. Paul emphatically declares, however, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. What does this mean? Well, from the broader general biblical perspective, it could mean, there's a possibility of, de- of meanings here, but it could mean that until God comes along to declare something off list, then in and of itself, the animal uh, isn't really clean or unclean. It's only in the context of ritual use that it's being declared clean or unclean. Israel's being set aside as a nation of priests unto God. Therefore, the context of service to God renders certain animals off the list. That could be one way to understand this. However, and that's based on um, working through the Hebrew definitions of clean and unclean. However, what we learned, and I'll put a little, uh, flash a little chart on the screen afterwards in post-production. Sorry for you guys in my live study, you're not going to be able to see this. But um, what we learned by looking at the Greek that is relevant to our discussion is that by the time we got to Paul's day and there were a lot of Greek-speaking Jewish people, we had two Greek words for the English term unclean. One of those Greek words Kathartos, was rooted in the intrinsic nature of an animal, such as the pig or the um uh the the, the you know the lobster or the, the the octopus or something a fish without fins and scales. It was rooted in defining something that was biblically off limits from eating unclean, a kathartos. This was the Greek counterpart to the the original Hebrew word. But there was another Greek word called koinos that was brought into discussions on food that is sometimes rendered in your Bible as unclean, but the better definition is handled by everyone, common or unsanctified. And this definition doesn't necessarily speak to the intrinsic nature of the food or the animal, so much as it speaks to man's additional um, description of food that may have been sold in a questionable marketplace from a Hebrew perspective, from a Jewish perspective. So again, think of my example. You have permissible food like lamb that is used in an idolatrous ceremony, a pagan ceremony, and then it's sold in the Greek or Gentile marketplace. Is your average religious Jew in Paul's day going to purchase that lamb? Probably not. Why not, you ask? Well, I mean, it is permissible from God's list. It's on God's list. It's got the thumbs up green check mark. However, it is of questionable origin and use because of its association with idolatry, because of its, of its association with people who aren't keeping a scrupulous diet from a religious Jewish perspective. Thus, your average religious Jew is going to avoid that cut of meat sold in that common marketplace. He's going to label that piece of lamb, you ready for it? Koinos common, which is rendered unclean in some versions of your Bibles. And that's where a little bit of confusion lies. That lamb is going to be labeled as koinos by his particular standard. What is the religious Jew going to do? He's going to go to your kosher butcher and purchase his meat from there, where he knows the lamb was not used in an idolatrous ceremony, and he knows it wasn't handled by everyone who didn't have a um, ritually clean hands to begin with, things like that. They didn't offer the food up to any particular gods. He knows it's not unsanctified meat. Therefore, his con- his conscience is fine. It's 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 okay. It's clear to buy that meat. Paul declares that nothing's unclean in and of itself. 
This could mean, again, there are more than one definition that are at play here, or I'm sorry, more than one option, possibility. I'm just giving you the option that Tim Haig's giving to us and the option that I think is also a very good fit for the context. Paul comes along and says nothing's unclean in of itself. Could Paul mean that the Leviticus list has been done away with? Is that what um, Haig's trying to convey? Is that what Paul's trying to convey? Paul could mean that... Um, uh, the dietary list has been being relaxed and lifted in Messiah, and that all things are clean, and that you no longer have to make a difference between pork and shellfish and and uh, shrimp and lobster and ham versus lamb and beef and chicken and things like that. That could be what Paul means when he says all things are clean, using the Greek word katharos. Um, but that's unlikely given uh, the nature of Paul's um, uh, lifestyle and his admittance to being a lifelong Torah keeper and um, uh, the fact that he sought to dispel rumors that he was uh, tearing down the law of Moses and doing away with circumcision and things like that. He went to great pains to to um, um, teach the opposite, right, and explain the opposite, that he is still a law break, a law keeper and that he is uh, loyal to the, law, the, the Torah that, hand, that God handed down through Moses and things like that. So that's probably not what he means when he says all things are clean. Instead, if we just go back to that context of, um, of him talking about man coming along, recognizing that God does have a list of what's what's edible and what's uh, not edible and yet man has a right to come along and say well if we pass certain animal uh, meats through uh, uh, certain markets or um, temples and things like that then they could be rendered off limits in other words the animal itself is innocent clean until a man comes along and declares otherwise so let's see if Tim Haig uh, agrees with that definition that I'm talking about Heg says, that is, if God has declared it clean and therefore edible, it should not be otherwise considered. In other words, we shouldn't say that it's unclean. So let's say in Paul's day, you have a religious Jew who um, knows that meat was sold in the marketplace, and he mo uh, the common marketplace, not a Jewish kosher butcher, but it was sold in the common Greek marketplace of his day. A religious Jew in Paul's day is likely to turn his nose up at that cut of meat, particularly if it's, say, lamb, using my example. He's likely to say no, because in his mind, it's common. It's off limits. It's It's got a measure of unsanctified uh, use because of it being handled by everyone. It's, it's um, koinos. The Greek word, which is better rendered common, but unfortunately some Bibles show up as uh, unclean, which really makes things confusing. But Paul says, you know, from a religious Jew's perspective, if that's your halakha, okay, I can respect that as a Jew myself. I'm speaking as if I'm Paul. However, your Greek Christians, your Gentile Christians who weren't raised in a Jewish environment, if that meat is permissible by God's Leviticus standard, then even though it was sold in the common marketplace, they don't have to turn their nose away just because it came from a non-kosher butcher. It's still permissible by God's standard. It's got the green light. It's got the thumbs up. It's got a green check mark on it from God's perspective, meaning it's a permissible animal. Yes, it was sold in a questionable um, supermarket from a Jewish religious perspective, but that doesn't have to carry over to the Gentile um, side of the house and the side of the discussion. Your Gentiles could still purchase that cut of meat. If God declared it clean, 
then it should not be otherwise considered, meaning considered as unclean. That's what Heg's trying to say. Gentiles, you guys are safe to eat that meat. God says it's okay to eat it, um, so it's fine. As long as, and let's let me, I'm Paul, I'm kind of fast-forwarding to the book of Corinthians for a second, particularly chapters 8, 9, and 10. As long as you are not actively, as Gentile Christians, participating in idolatrous ceremonies itself, and then knowingly partaking of meat that you knew, without a shadow of a doubt, was used in a pagan ceremony... Then, otherwise, if you're just buying it from your average Gentile supermarket, then otherwise it's okay to eat that meat. As long as you don't have some heavy-duty knowledge that it was you know, used in a pagan ceremony and your conscience is going to restrict you. Generally speaking, speaking to the general consensus at Rome, um, your Gentile uh, uh, population the ones who profess belief in Jesus, um, go ahead and eat that meat if it's sold in the marketplace. He even goes on to say that, eat what's sold in the market without raising a ma- a, a questions of conscience. I think I'm paraphrasing uh, something he mentions in Corinthians. So that's going to be the context that's going to help the Roman communities kind of fit a little more closely with their Jewish religious counterparts in this particular section of the letter. Let's continue reading through Hague and see if this makes any sense. That is, Heck says, this viewpoint is correct. That this viewpoint is correct. Uh, will be seen in verse 20 where Paul includes the word food. When he says, all things are clean. He doesn't mean that, um, say, pagan practices are clean. He doesn't suddenly mean that idolatry is clean. He certainly doesn't mean that prostitution is clean or, or all those other sins and vices that Gentiles are told to steer clear of. He doesn't mean everything is clean. The context is still food, and that's what we're talking about, and that's why Hig mentions that. So, um, look at what he says in verse 20, right? It's 19 and 20 and 21 that I'll call all kind of fit together there. Um, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. And so, food in verse 21 that he's quoting here is attached to, um, I think it's verse 20, I think that might be verse 21 there, but um, all things are indeed clean. The things that Paul has in mind are the food, so that's the context. Paul's point, Hig concludes, must be that everything that qualifies as food, i.e. everything God permits to be eaten, is indeed clean or is indeed innocent. It's ready to be handled uh, by someone who's ready to say, okay, I can use this for all purpose, eating and cooking and, and, you know, and recipes and things like that. As long as God says it's permissible, then we, sh- we don't need to fight and tear at each other's throats um, saying, nope, God says it's clean, but I say it's unclean, but no, no, no. Uh, God says it's clean, but I say it's clean. Um, so we have some, some friction there. Um, this seems to be the issue that was uh, uh, plaguing at least these particular Roman communities. So uh, let me say it in my commentary this way. These are my own words. Again, just to be absolutely clear, I maintain that Shaul is not teaching us that the dietary list of Leviticus 11 has been discarded. This, again, is the popular Christian perspective by today's Bible teaching standards. If you read through commentary after commentary on the book of Romans, and you get to Romans chapter 14 and read verse um, 19 and 20 and 21, indeed most of the chapter, you listen to your average pastor 
explain it to you or you pop into a seminary and peek into the professor's notes or you go online and Google search uh, you know these particular verses and what they mean most the majority of commentaries are going to tell you Paul is telling the Roman Gentiles that they don't have to keep clean according to the Bible that that was handed to Moses God has has done away with those dietary restrictions in Messiah. He's lifted the restrictions based on the fact that Messiah has cleansed all food. Again, going back to the Mark 7 passage, rendering from many Bible translations, thus he declared all foods clean or something like that. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man, thus he declared all foods clean. You guys are familiar with the passage in Mark 7. Um, I think it's like 719 or something like that. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly which verse it is. But the point being, this is the traditional in, uh, Christian interpretation of what Paul is giving us here in Romans. And I believe that this is a disservice to Paul's testimony as a Messianic Jew. It's a disservice to the um, long-standing uh, um, applicability, applicability of the law of Moses in the uh, communities uh, of Paul's day, uh, particularly the establishment of God's word as the standard of holiness and righteousness, and what was deeming what was deemed right and wrong, black and white, sin and 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 uh, righteousness, holiness. The law of Moses was that standard. The Bible that Paul carried didn't include a New Testament. That's the whole thing. That's the whole uh, uh, um, the reality that we have to come to face with, uh, that, they have to, that we have to come to grips with in our 21st century discussions on this matter. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw our study to a close tonight with these statements. We'll pick this up again next week. We'll just start with this uh, paragraph here. Paul is not likely telling the Gentile Christians that you can eat everything, uh, you know, have a ham sandwich and get over it. Um, don't worry about it. He's, he's not telling the Gent, he's not even really telling the Jews, the religious Jews, hey, um, God lifted the dietary restrictions. Everything is clean. Nothing's unclean anymore. Pork is not unclean. Shrimp is not unclean. Eat whatever you want. Don't worry about it. Jesus cleansed it. The laws have been done away with. Not, we're not under the law. We're under grace. That popular opinion doesn't really line up with Paul's own admission to keeping Torah his whole life and to establishing Torah and the obedience of faith among the Gentiles that he talks about in his letters. It also doesn't fit with um, Moses uh, speaking of the continuing validity of his own words uh, all throughout the letters of Moses, right? All throughout the um, the books that Moses laid down. If you read through them, there doesn't seem to be an indication that someone's going to come along later on and uplift those or do away with them. Any Messiah figure is not going to come along and disrupt him. And then finally, and I'll close with this, we have the words of the master himself. If you can't trust Moses, because he's a man, if you can't trust Paul, because he's a man, and if you can't agree to what I'm saying because I'm a man, at least listen and believe with what the master himself said, because he's more than a man. He's very God himself. And what did he say in the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, starting at verse uh, 17 and going through verse 20? I didn't come to do away with the law of Moses. I'm not going to do away with it. I'm going to fulfill it. And that word fulfill is likely rooted in a definition that includes establishing, strengthening, 
correctly interpreting the law of Moses, bringing it to its proper foundation among God's people, and giving you the strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to implement God's words and God's ways so that you can walk them out and actually fulfill the righteous requirement of the Torah as you live and walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. How do I know that that's the proper definition of the words fulfill by the Master? Because Paul gives us that definition in Romans chapter 8, the first, say, 10 verses or so. Go back and read it on your homework assignment this week. Paul brings the definition of the fulfilling of Torah and the walking according to the Spirit uh, into his letter here in the book of Romans. So with that, let's draw our study to a close. We'll pick this up again next week. Yes, it's a bit controversial by today's Christian standards to suppose that Paul's not relaxing the dietary list, that he actually does want the Gentile Christians to keep kosher according to the law of Moses, but he understands that there's going to be some friction because of the inclusion of Gentiles into the faith community at Israel's level and the differences of understanding of meat sold in common marketplaces, meat offered up to idols and used in idolatrous ceremonies, and how do we fit that in with the fact that God didn't change the dietary list, but at the same time, we've got to allow people to have um, some slight differences when it comes to the origins of food. How can we get together without fighting one another and tearing one another down? That's what we're having a discussion on. And that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Um, let me see, where am I with this particular um, part of my study? I apologize, my bookmarks got all wonky when I blew up the um, uh, uh, screen. Let me see, we are in uh, section three, or paper three, um, exploring the Shema, who or what is the Holy Spirit? And I know for a fact we're in the uh, section on uh, who or what is the Holy Spirit, who or what spirit is indwelling believers, section three of my um, Shema study. So let's drop down uh, into the study. We pulled a quote from the book of Galatians chapter three into the study. We're asking, we're entertaining the discussion about who is inside of us as believers. Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the Spirit of Christ? Or is it the Holy Spirit himself. Now, it sounds like a somewhat of an absurd question from a Trinitarian perspective. Every well-meaning, established uh, Trinitarian, under the sound of my voice, would answer my question as something like, Ariel, of course, all three are inside of us, but we don't have to think of it like three spirits. Or four, if you want to count your own spirit still living in there. It's not necessary that you, you want to think of God's spirit as separate from the spirit of Messiah, as separate from the Holy Spirit. There's only one spirit, one person of the Holy Spirit, one third person of the Godhead or the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit, and he dwells inside of us. But the language that the Bible offers to us helps us understand that it's the very same Spirit of God who is the Spirit of Messiah in a mysterious way. And the reason I brought this discussion in where it's relevant for us in our Trinity study right now is because when we're talking about salvation, can we say that God's Spirit dwells within us generically, and thus, in a generic fashion, we don't really need the Spirit of Messiah to enter into discussion. Can we be saved by acknowledging God's Spirit alone? Can I just say, well, I'm a Jew, I'm a religious Jew, I believe in God, and I believe in God's Spirit, and I believe that if I keep the commandments, that God's Spirit comes to dwell on me and in me. Therefore, I'm saved, and I'm on my way to heaven. 
Is that a valid discussion? I would say no. I would say no. Why? Because the exclusive claims that Jesus makes as Messiah include belief in his atonement as my Messiah. I must place my objective faith in his atoning work on the cross in order to receive the indwelling Holy Spirit that God sends and in order to claim genuine salvation. Well, that's true today because Christ has come. Christ has already been crucified. Of course, I can state that uh, emphatically as a 21st century Christian. But could we state that for someone such as Abraham? Was Abraham saved the same way that I'm saved? Did he have the same Holy Spirit inside of him that I have inside of me today? I think the answer is yes. And we pulled a quote from Galatians chapter 3, where Paul goes to great length to explain to the Galatian believers there that Father Abraham is the man of faith that they need to model their faith after. Abraham was declared as genuinely saved by God because he placed his genuine trust in the word of the Lord who was revealing himself to Abraham. And indeed, we would even go on to believe from the book of Romans, I'm sorry, the book of uh, Hebrews, that Abraham, or I'm sorry, even Yeshua's own words, that Abraham was even given a glimpse of of Messiah's uh, crucifixion. Abraham longed to see my day and he rejoiced. He was glad when he saw it. You, uh, Jesus tells us, I think it's somewhere around John chapter 6 or 7 or 8 that he talks about that. So Paul brings Abraham in as the model of faith for Christian Gentiles in Galatia, right? And if Abraham is the model of faith, how could this be unless Abraham had the genuine gospel? These are the verses that you're seeing uh, scroll by slowly on my screen from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 verses 1 through 9. Go back and read them on your own. I'm not going to read them again for our study. Instead, let me pick up our quote here and uh, go in this direction. I say in my notes, the gospel is plain and open to us right here in the Bible. I'm talking about Galatians chapter 3, which is nicely complimented. I might add, by Romans chapter 4. If you have some time this week, I highly recommend sit down. It doesn't take very long to read these two chapters. Sit down and read Galatians chapter 3 and then turn immediately to Romans chapter 4 and read that. Very nice complimentary material where the same author, Paul, talking about the same um, biblical uh, character, which is Abraham, and he's addressing a similar segment of people, which is Gentile Christians, to explain how that they, the Gentile Christians, have been brought into the family of Abraham by faith the same way that Abraham was brought into the family of God. The same faith, the one and the same gospel, the same Messiah as the object of their faith, the same spirit indwelling them as genuine believers. And all of this is done, and then very important from Paul's day perspective, all of this is done without having to change their ethnicity from Gentile to Jew. So let's look at my notes. This is the gospel. It's plain to us right here in the Bible. To be uh, sure, or to wit, uh, for instance, I say, if you believe um, that God the Father sent his only unique son into the world to die a cruel death in order to free you from your own personal sin and shame, then I have to tell you, no matter 
if you're Jewish or Gentile today, no matter if you lived before the cross event or after it, if this is what uh, if this is the case, if you are a believer in Messiah, if you have professed Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, then it then I can go on to declare that you are a genuine child of Abraham. And if so, then the same spirit of Messiah, let me scroll up a bit, the same spirit of Messiah who is in Abraham is the same spirit of Messiah who is in you. Let me just pause and let that sink in for a bit. If you're a Christian, if you're watching this YouTube video, you're listening to this iTunes podcast, and you genuinely have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through Messiah. You have um, said this, prayed the sinner's prayer, and you are genuine. And you know that you know that you know that Jesus is Lord, that he is your Savior, that if you were to die today, that you are 100% sure that you're going to heaven, you have no doubt. Then first and foremost, I say, Baruch Hashem, praise God, right? But I'm here to let you know that the same Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah, the Spirit of God, right? There's that Trinity all over again. That same spirit was in Abraham. Why? Because Abraham had the genuine gospel. Abraham didn't have a generic faith in God like some religious Jews would want to claim, like some Muslims want to believe. Abraham had a genuine salvific relationship with God because God revealed that aspect of salvation to him. Otherwise, Paul's words are nonsense. The whole bringing Abraham in as the um, model of faith to both the Galatians in Galatians 3 and the Romans in Romans 4 makes no sense from our modern Christian perspective. If Abraham's faith is different than the faith that we enjoy as Christians today. Are you understanding my logic here? Besides, like I said, Jesus himself said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, speaking of Yeshua, Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Yeshua, right? Abraham's descendant. And Abraham was glad. And the Jews, of course, listened to Yeshua's words, you know, talking about Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And the Jews looked at Jesus and they're like, and I'm paraphrasing, Dude, you're not even 30 years old, and, and Abraham rejoiced to see your day. What in the world are you talking about? You're out of your mind. Abraham lived a long time ago, and you're talking as if he lived like yesterday. What do you mean Abraham rejoiced to see your day? You're just a kid. Abraham's old was old, and he's long gone. You know, are you crazy? Are you Meshuga? And yet, Jesus looked at them, and he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Right? And that just blew their minds. Right? Pop. So, the point I'm trying to bring up is that Abraham had a genuine relationship with God at the salvific level, at the salvation level. Abraham had the very same spirit inside him that we have in us today, if you're a believer in Jesus. That's the whole point of reading through Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4, is that you Gentiles, in Paul's day, Paul's trying to get them to understand, you're as much a child of Abraham and a child of God as Abraham himself was a child of God. Um because the salvation is the same. And this is why we can affirm that when Jesus declares that I am the way, truth, and life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me, Yeshua's claims to exclusivity go forward in time and backwards in time. When he says no one can come to the Father except through me, he doesn't mean, but there's this exception clause if you lived before I died. 
right? If you live before my cross event, then you can come to the Father and you can circumvent my interaction or my intercession, right? My go-betweenism. Um, you don't need to go through me if you live before the cross. Abraham, you can come to the Father and you can circumvent my presence. But everyone coming after this, saying that I'm I'm feeling as if I'm I'm, I'm this this um, version of Jesus that doesn't make sense. Um, but everyone else who comes after my cross event, after I'm going to die and be crucified and be resurrected, you have to go through me if you want to get to the Father. No, no. You see that logic falls apart. Yeshua's words are exclusive. I am the way. That means the way before. I was on the scene before I came to planet Earth, and now that I've come, the salvation I offer, I'm speaking as Messiah, is is um, uh, universal. It cuts both ways. So, I say in my commentary, having read the gospel truth of Galatians chapter 3, and I might add Romans chapter 4 if you have a chance to read that, now let us observe these various, what I call, location and identity of the spirit passages. And let's decide for ourselves exactly who it is that is residing and operating from within the very inside of a genuine child of God. And so here's what I'm going to do for us over the next course of probably this week and next week and maybe even into the week to come because I don't want to rush it. We're going to look at a few verses one by one. And we're going to start all the way back in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And we're going to work our way towards the New Testament. And we New Testament Christians are going to maintain, we're going to stand our ground when it comes to what Yeshua said that I'm the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me and John. We're going to use that as our anchor. We're going to use that as our as our foundational truth that salvation is offered only and exclusively through Jesus and that there are no other messiahs or other paths to God. You guys have seen this wheel-spoke kind of religious theory before. I'll put a little graphic on the screen here in post-production. There's this kind of a spoke-wheel theory where we've got a kind of like a... Um, a wheel where there's a hub in the middle and these spokes that are emanating from the hub all the way out to the rim, right? So picture like an old wagon wheel or something like that. And the theory is that by today's kind of um, relative uh, religious Christian, uh, religious standards, not Christian, but kind of secular humanistic religious perspective, God represents that little hub in the middle and the little spokes leading from the rim on the outside towards the center spokes. A hub in the middle represent all the of the comparative religions, right? You know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Mormonism, Buddhism, Shintoism, uh, Hare Krishnaism. Is that really a word? I don't think that is, but just sounded really cool. Um, all these other um, different isms and religions uh, that you bring to the table of discussion when you're talking about comparative religions, and really. From man's perspective, it doesn't matter which which religion you start from on the outside, which spoke you're brought up in, which religion is your native or heritage religion. It doesn't matter as long as you're traveling in the same direction towards that center hub, which is God. Maybe you call him Buddha. Maybe you call him, um, uh, you know, Allah. Maybe you call him uh, whatever, you know. Um, Whatever your religion is, it doesn't matter. You're all going to end up in the same hub in the middle. We're all going to meet in the middle, which is God. And so let's just all get along, right? Let's coexist. I think I'll throw that graphic on the screen. You guys have seen those bumper stickers, coexist with all those uh, religions. Guess what? I'm here to tell you, we're not, we can't all coexist. We can all get along, 
right? We can be uh, civil towards one another. But unfortunately, Jesus doesn't allow his exclusive claim as the one and only Messiah of God to coexist with any other messianic pretenders. At the end of the day, when God comes to settle all of his accounts and bring all those other false religions to light and shed the truth on the fact of who is the true God and who's the true Messiah, we've already got the written revelation in the word of God right now. But one day Messiah is going to come and all the world will know because every knee will down and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells me in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Well, guess what? The exclusive nature of Jesus' claims as Messiah is going to be then brought to light. And we're going to realize that there's only one Spirit of God and one Spirit of Messiah and one Holy Spirit that can come to dwell and take up residency within a human. That's the scope of our study. As we look through these verses, we're going to realize that the language of the Bible even though God um, presents himself as the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, and we have verses that talk about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, or some verses that bring in the Spirit of Christ or something like that, we're going to have to realize that at the end of the day, the um, unified nature of God as the one true and only God, sending his one and only true Son to the world, is the way that the Bible describes the truth that we must uh, embrace as believers. So let's look at this first verse. Isaiah 63, verse 11, KJV, quote, Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? Um, Speaking of Moses. So the writer, which is Isaiah, is referencing God. He's referencing Moses. He's referencing the people of God, right? The people of Israel. And he's referencing who else is in that verse? Who else is in there? The spirit that was within Moses. Well, who was that? Well, it's God who put his own Holy Spirit in Moses, right? So no one would disagree. No one's going to argue that God put his Holy Spirit in Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Well, that was Moses, but it was also God himself. God used Moses as the instrument to raise the staff split the sea, the people walked over on dry ground. So, what's the purpose of bringing this first verse into the discussion? Well, earlier on, I mean, right away, we can see that Isaiah is not going to um, try to imagine that we should understand that there's any other spirit other than God's Holy Spirit that was at play in the Old Testament. Where is he that put his Holy Spirit? How many spirits were there? There's only one. There's only one Holy Spirit. But, of course, again, humorously, for for our line of discussion, this is discussions on the issues of Trinity, is it the Holy Spirit of God? Is it the Holy Spirit himself? Is it the Spirit of Christ? Right? The skeptic has to kind of wrestle with which spirit is at play there. Really, the Trinitarian doesn't have to wrestle. He understands the, the mysterious nature of Bible verses that speak of Spirit of God, Spirit of Messiah, and the Holy Spirit as being the same Spirit, and yet the overlapping uh, uh, 
titles there or um, verses that speak in different ways all point to the Spirit's nature of the unified nature of God. That's the thrust of what we're looking at. So the next verse, Ezekiel 36, verse 27, ESV again. By the way, I didn't use ESV in all of the verses. Some have ESV. There's NASB in here. KJV is in here as well. Um, just kind of getting a, a, a kind of a, a I don't know, a, a variety of different translations. Uh, ESV says, and I will put my spirit within you. Who's the person talking? Is it Ezekiel? Is it Ezekiel's spirit that's going to be put within us? Go back and read the passage. I think you guys already know it's not. Um, because the rest of the verse says, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's in, it's it's obvious right away that it's God who's ta- doing the talking. Ezekiel simply doing the writing. God says, I will put my spirit within you. He's speaking to the prophet Ezekiel to convey these words to the people of Israel. Do you think that when the people of Israel interacted with these words of this prophecy, do you think for a moment that they thought that there was a different spirit that God was referring to other than God's very own spirit? Do you think they stopped and pondered the idea from an ontological or economic perspective like we do today? Which spirit is God going to put in us? Is it his very spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the separate person, the third person of the Trinity spirit? Is it the spirit of the Messiah or the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord or the captain of the Lord, Lord's armies? Is it that spirit? Which spirit is going to come and be put within us? <laughs> right? By the way, these are corporate promises. So um, don't don't get too wrapped up around uh, trying to understand how this spirit is going to be played out. These are still corporate promises that, from a corporate perspective, from Israel's perspective, are still future. Individually, they they've already come to pass, and they've always been available to Israel to allow God to put His spirit within an individual Israelite and to walk into statutes and be careful to obey God's rules. But from a corporate perspective. Just look at the world around you. Look at the news governing um, the state of Israel today. Read any newspaper, go online and look up uh, the state of affairs in religious Israel today, and you will instantly understand that Ezekiel's promise is yet future. God will put his spirit within Israel, but it's still a future occurrence. But we should be praying for this to happen, okay? Let's keep going through some of these passages. We're not going to get through all of them tonight. We'll keep going for another five minutes or so, but you guys are beginning to get the point. The point I'm trying to bring up, in case you aren't beginning to get it, is that there are words and terms and verses in the Bible. You have a skeptic, a oneness Pentecostal or a, a Unitarian Christian or an Iglesia Ni Cristo or a Christadelphian or a, a um, I think it's what Worldwide Church of God, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, who was non Trinitarian as well, um, or some of the other um, um, uh, non Trinitarian Christian groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and, the, and uh, Mormon groups and things like that. Um, non-Trinitarian Christian groups who say there's only one spirit and he's either A, to be understood as the very spirit of God himself, God's very own spirit, or B, he's an impersonal force of energy that God zaps us with and empowers us with to do uh, the works of God. It's one of the two, usually. But 
Either way, most non-Trinitarian groups reject the notion of a third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit, where he is equal with God on the ontological level, right? His being is the very being of God. He is full deity. He is very God, the Holy Spirit himself. And yet, from the um, economic Trinity perspective, his role in the Trinity is um, subservient to the Father God, and he's even subservient to and obedient to Yeshua, the, the second person of the Trinity. He's invisible. He takes a back seat often. Uh, he, he fills us. He infills us. He causes us to have fellowship with one another as Christians, as believers. But he confirms God's words. He confirms Yeshua's words. Uh, he comforts us, um, um, strengthens the words of God. Um, he's the down payment, right? He's the paraclete, uh, things like that. Um, but you guys understand what I'm saying when I say third person in um, uh, uh, economic nature of the Trinity, the roles and functions of the uh, Trinity. I'll put a little graphic on the screen for you to see this as well. But what we're looking at is when we read through the Bible, your Unitarian Christian is going to say all of these references to spirit throughout the Bible, they're just the same one spirit of God and there isn't any third person. But... If you read the verses like I'm reading them at face value, you begin to realize that there's a little bit of challenge going on. I am reading about the Spirit, and particularly when I read to the Old Testament, it's certainly it's for certain that it's the Spirit of God. But as I get to the New Testament, then I start reading language by the New Testament writers that give me the impression and understanding that there is a person of the Spirit separate from God the Spirit who is being talked about, spoken of, and who's doing things on his own. He's being sent by God <clears throat> as a uh, as a person of God to do God's bidding. And indeed, when we get to the Romans passage, Paul's going to even talk about the spirit of Christ in us and things like that. So look at Matthew 10 verse 20 in the New American Standard Bible. For it is not you who are speaking, Jesus says, these are the master's words, but it is the spirit of your father who is speaking in you. So here's a verse where Yeshua seems to take the theology of the Old Testament Right, Jesus is a religious Jew. He would have been very familiar with the Tanakh of his day. He would have spoken as a regular religious Jew. He wouldn't have had a, wouldn't have had a problem referring to the Spirit and identifying the Spirit as the Spirit of your Father. So we could say in this passage, it's unmistakable that the Spirit spoken of here is not necessarily a third person of the spirit we could we could even say it's the first person of the spirit it's the spirit of of your father who is the father the father is god this means it would just be god's very own spirit and there wouldn't have to be in our minds a separation so if you were picture picturing the trinity and you're picturing like god the father god the son god the holy spirit as if they're separate um persons in your mind then for the sake of this verse, you could almost picture as the person on the far left, going reading from left to right, the, you know, God the Father, the spirit of that person is the one that Yeshua is referring to here, right? And whereas if you're looking in the middle, the person standing in front of you reading from left to right, you would think it's um, 
the, the spirit, you would think it's Jesus Christ himself. He's the second person. And then the third person on your far right, if I'm going from left to right, would be maybe the Holy Spirit, right? Kind of thinking of the three persons. Um, who's Yeshua referring to right now in Matthew? He's referring to God the Father and the Spirit of God the Father, which, you ready for this? The Spirit of the Spirit. Because God is a spirit, and yet if it's his own spirit who's speaking in you, then it's the Spirit of the Spirit, as opposed to as if Jesus' spirit was in you, then it's the spirit of a human. All right, got to factor that in, right? Um, look at Luke 12, verse 12, KJV. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a parallel passage to the Matthew passage. Let me put the two both, both on the screen for a second. Matthew has Yeshua telling the disciples when they're brought before the rulers in the synagogues and you're being questioned, don't worry about what to say in advance. I'm giving you the, the greater context of the passages. Don't worry about what you have to say. Don't try to figure it out in advance because God himself, through his spirit, will give you the words to say. He will speak through you. And yet now, in Luke, we have Yeshua saying, the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. This is really peculiar because it's kind of an overlap and peek at the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit. Or if I may, the first person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity are being overlapped in these two verses. It's definitely Yeshua doing the same speaking, and it's definitely the same kind of context, same situation that he's referring to, talking about the disciples being brought before rulers, rulers and leaders of the synagogue and being questioned for their faith in God. But notice, Matthew has Yeshua talking about the Spirit as if it's the Spirit of God the Father, and yet Luke doesn't mention the Father, the Spirit of the Father. He simply says, for the Holy Ghost, as if it is the third person of the Trinity, who's going to be telling you what you ought to say, right? And so, um, we, and then finally in John uh, 14, 17, and I think I'll stop here tonight, it's the same reference, I believe. Um, no, it's a different, I, I, it's not the same context, but it is Yeshua speaking. It's, it is the Gospels, so we're still within that context. Red Letter Edition Bible would have this in red if this was KJV. It is Yeshua speaking. He says, he's speaking to the disciples, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You, speaking to the disciples, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice Jesus just says the spirit of truth. He cannot be seen by the world, because the world doesn't see him. The world cannot receive him. The world's on a different relational level to him and with him. They don't know God, and therefore they don't know the spirit of truth. They neither see him nor know him because they're not in a position where they believe in me and they don't believe in the Father. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If we were to go back and read the entire context of John chapter 14 and follow through to 15, 16, 17, we're going to see that Yeshua regularly interacts with the disciples speaking of his father God 
and speaking of the Spirit that the Father will send and that the Son will send, who will come and be the Comforter and the one who will confirm the words of the of the Messiah and things like that. Meaning, Yeshua had this Trinitarian perspective when he spoke of God the Father and of himself as being sent by the Father, and of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, whom the Father would send, and who would be sent by uh, Jesus himself, who would proceed from the Father, and yet Jesus would send him. It seems that Yeshua is able to speak in Trinitarian circles and have no problem speaking of the three persons of the Trinity any more than John wrote about the same three persons when he had Yeshua being baptized in the Jordan by John and then the heavens opening up and for that brief moment you have God the Father speaking this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased the Holy Spirit descending as a dove landing on the second person of the Trinity, which is Messiah, the Son. In that brief moment, we had all three figures at play. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all there in front of us. Well, if you read through the Gospels, Yeshua regularly speaks of God the Father, His Father, so there's first person of the Trinity. Yeshua Himself is the one doing the speaking, that's second person of the Trinity. And then out here in verse 14 of John, He speaks of the Spirit of Truth, that's third person of the Trinity. So, this is the language that we have to contend with, and I'm closing with this, when we're reading through our Bibles as Trinitarians. And it presents some, I'm, quite frankly, it presents some challenges to the Unitarian model who would like us to imagine that there's only one spirit at a play at all times, and it's simply the spirit of God, his very own spirit, or it's some impersonal force of God, some energy that's, that's, um, emanating from God that lands on believers or, or fills us with energy or plugs us in or charges our batteries or whatever description you want to give it. Um, there's, there's, there's question to that perspective because of the way these verses are, are um, worded and um, interpreted at face value. We didn't finish this. We'll pick this up next week. We'll start with this verse right here again, John 14, 17, and we'll just keep rolling with this. But... Um, um, that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our um, uh, liturgy and begin to wind down our study. Uh, let's just read um, three verses out of the book of Genesis, two verses out of the book of Romans, and that'll do it for our study tonight. Uh, I'm not going to watch the video. I'll skip the video since we've run out of time. Um, and so we'll, after the uh, liturgy, we'll simply just cl uh, close in prayer. Genesis 2, verse 1. Uh, these are Sabbath passages. We talked about Sabbath last week. We're continuing on that discussion in chapter 2 here. Uh, Moses writes in verse 1 of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Verse 2, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Sabbath verses, to be sure, even though the word Sabbath doesn't show up in these verses, he uses the, the description of seventh day. But make no mistake, in other passages, um, like say in Exodus, he overlaps the word seventh with the word Sabbath, so that we have no mistake that the Sabbath is the seventh day, and the seventh day is the Sabbath day. The Hebrew on the right side of the screen of verse 1 says, Vaihulu Hashamim Vaha'aretz Vaihotz Va'am. 
Verse 2 says, Vayichol Elohim bayom hashvi'i melakto asher rasa vayish bot bayom... Well, he does say... Well, he, he, it's words similar to the Sabbath there when he said he rested vayish bot bayom hashvi'i and he rested on the seventh day. And it says in uh, Hebrew, Mikol melakto asher rasa. So we have a word similar to our word for Sabbath. Um, it's not the exact same word. It's a verbal form instead of the noun form. Uh, the word rested right here in the English, uh, the verbal form, is, shows up uh, over here in the uh, Hebrew. Vaish uh, bot, this verb right there, he rested on the seventh day. He rested on the seventh day. He shabbated, if you want to get really ultra, um, uh, ultra literal. Uh, verse 3 says, Vayidarech Elohim et yom hashvi'i Vayikadesh oto kivo shabbat Again, we have shabbat, shabbat, he rested. Kivo shabbat, which shabbat, again, this Hebrew word right there, even though it's a verb, it's where we get the noun shabbat. You can even hear it, shabbat. Shabbat, right? One's a V, one's a B sound. Ki vo Shabbat milakto milakto asher bara Elohim laosot. So, just some interesting nuggets for us to consider as we're reading through our Bible. Let's turn to Romans 14 and read verse 5 and 6. These are the verses that many Christians have been taught is a discussion on Sabbath versus Sunday. Um, I disagree with that interpretation. I don't think Paul's pitting Sabbath versus Sunday. I think in context, he's pitting fast days versus fast days, uh, fast days versus non-fast days, uh, which days you fast on, uh, which days you set aside as a special day to fast on, which days others don't recognize. In English, he says in Romans 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Eve once could be fully convinced in his own mind. I think what Paul's saying in plain language is one person esteems a fast day and sets that aside for God as a fast day, and it's better than those other days because it's a day spent fasting and and, and uh, recognizing God's presence. Others esteem all days as alike, meaning it's okay to eat. Uh, there's no special quality to that day. I don't have to fast to God. I have my own different fast days. So we have differences of opinion when it comes to which days I'm going to fast on, which days I'm going to set aside to God and worship God during that fast day. The point is that each one should be fully convinced about his own fast day in his own mind. I think that's the best way to understand the passage. He continues in verse 6, the one who observes that fast day observes it in honor of the Lord, meaning he doesn't eat. The one who does eat, by contrast, I think that's the the the, the, uh, the context. The one who does eat eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains from eating, meaning it's a fast day, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So notice right away, even in the language that he's talking about eating and abstaining, and I think this is proof that it is fast versus non-fast days. Uh, the Greek, let's read that on the right side of the page. Verse 5, Hos men garakrine himeron, par himeron, Hos decrine pasan himeron, hekastos into idionoi pleuroforesto. Verse 6, and verse 6 contains what many recognize 
is a bracketed variant so that if you have a King James version of your Bible, which draws from a different manuscript family, then that manuscript was a longer reading, which included some extra words. But if you're reading from an uh, from a more modern Bible, like a ESV or an NASB or something else, you're going to have a shorter reading in your Bible. It's going to leave out some of those extra words because the manuscript family that it pulls from is shorter in the Greek. Which one is the more which one's the original that Paul wrote? Hard to say for certain, right? There seems to be a lot of weight on either side um, as to which one is the more uh, which one's the original. But nevertheless, we can see this in Greek Bibles that show the variants, and it is right there. Uh, is that important for our discussion uh, for our liturgy? <laughs> no, not really. I'm just bringing it up for your um, for your uh, FYI for your trivia. So let's read verse 6 in the Greek. It says, And then pause, insert the bracket for the longer reading for those KJV folks. End of bracket, end of variant. Resume now the shorter reading for those of you who are reading ESV, NASB, and things like that. Ha estion curio estie euchariste, gar totheo kai ha me estion curio uc estie kai euchariste to theo. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. And that'll do it for our study. Let's close in prayer. Ab, I bless your name, and I am so grateful that I have a family and a community of like-minded believers who are willing and able to meet with me on a week-to-week basis and have these live studies. Lord, I know that everybody's schedule allows them to have these types of meetings, but I'm thankful for those in this small group who are able to meet with me, and I'm certainly blessed for their presence and for the uh, insight that they share, the um, fellowship that they provide, and the strength that they uh, give me um, as a fellow uh, uh, co-worker in Christ. Uh, Raise us up, Lord, and protect us. Continue to bless us and strengthen us and help us to um, be careful to walk the way of holiness like you commanded us to do. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the preeminence and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.